Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Murder on the Space Coast. I was initially raped in the first hour in prison. I never spoke of that to anybody. I never reported it. I had lost who I was. Now I had become somebody else. They put me up under the cell, and within an hour, I was attacked by five uh, prisoners. Not for anything I said or did. There was no words ever passed. They just ran into my cell and started attacking This is what a lot of uninformed people who have been blogging and Twittering and writing in the newspaper don't understand. Everyone has a job. It was not my job to determine Mr. Dillon's innocence or guilt. It was my job to take the evidence that was given to me by the Sheriff's Department and present that in the light most favorable to the state within the ethical rules and guidelines, and that is what I did. I'm news columnist John H. Juarez, and welcome back to the second season of Murder on the Space Coast, a podcast detailing the stories of men who were arrested, tried, convicted, and sent to prison in the 1980s for crimes they did not commit. Their prosecutions were led or overseen by the same man, Dean Moxley, who used the same fraudulent dog handler, John Preston, as a quote-unquote expert witness, and who bolstered the cases with the lying testimony of jailhouse snitches rapists and murderers who would see years lopped off of their sentences in exchange for their testimony. Was Dean Moxley misled by an expert witness he trusted and jailhouse informants he believed? Or was there something more sinister going on here? A warning, Murder on the Space Coast deals with adult and graphic topics. It may not be suitable for younger or sensitive listeners. Last episode, we saw how the testimony of jailhouse informant Roger Dale Chapman, a rapist, helped send Bill Dillon to prison to serve a life sentence when he was only 22 years old for the murder of James Dvorak. It was a murder that he did not commit. We also learned that if Dillon's very first hour in prison was an indication of how his time would be served, then he wasn't going to last very long. He was raped by five men in his very first hour behind bars. He was held down and attacked over and over. He became a marked man a rape victim, someone who could be taken. His nightmare took him to the deepest levels of despair. He wanted to die. So now my life value that I feel is, is, is worthless. My value for my life is worthless. I don't want to deal with this anymore. I don't want to see this. I don't want to deal with it in any way. I want to go to sleep and I, want to, I don't want to wake up. In between thoughts of suicide, he took his anger out on whatever was around him. I began to just sweat, anger, and and frustration, and just total rage. And I began to tear the cell apart. 
the sinks were porcelain and the toilets were porcelain, so I began to tear them apart. And you know, as if you start tearing the, the porcelain, the plumbing, water breaks and everything like that, so they began to come into my cell and eradicate me from the cell and have me checked as, as a uh, psych. That meant Bill was put into the psych ward with those who need psychiatric help and who might be a danger to themselves. But what is really, really amazing is that even during these terribly dark days, the human heart and mind are still capable of somehow, some way, creating a little ember of hope and clinging to it. When you go to sleep at night, you just try to hope that something will happen in your case and tomorrow I'll bring some paperwork that says, you know, we made a mistake. That seems almost laughable in a sense, but you'd be surprised at how strong that is within you that you're thinking that eventually whoever committed the crime will come forward and say, I committed that crime. He didn't commit that crime. That tiny little flicker of hope allowed Bill Dillon to survive the nightmare of being an innocent man serving a life sentence. He takes on a number of job assignments over the years, including making furniture. He works out, he plays sports, he teaches himself how to play the guitar. He also finds God. Then, about 15 years or so into his life sentence, he hears about an organization that just might be able to cultivate that seed of hope he's been clinging to. In the 90s, there was an innocent project, and I wrote to multiple, multiple. I wrote to different colleges, in a sense, to try to get somebody to look at my case. These are all through legal appeals and searchuaries and stuff like that, and trying to go to the federal, the federal courts. But at the same time, I'm writing to some law firms, not law firms, but, but college people that take up your case pro bono because they need stuff to work on in their law, in, in their law, uh, learning the, the school. So it's like uh, I'm coming through everybody that I can. They got in contact with my brother because of my case, and it actually started 10 years ago, and the ball fell in on that one. And I don't know how it did or whatever it did, but they were working on it, questioning my case. But it never actually, it actually never came into light. Still, he learned that a deadline to file a motion to test DNA in his case was fast approaching. It was time for his Hail Mary shot. I filed what they call a, a, a motion for DNA testing. The window was closing in July. And I finally prompted myself just to actually file something because I have the attitude now, John, that nothing works. I've been in prison now for 25 years at this point. Nothing works. It doesn't matter. I'm going to be in prison for life. So I just put it in. Actually, God prompted me more or less than anything to at least try because I had multiple people working on my case and trying to do things for me and stuff, and I just didn't have the finances to, to free myself. I didn't have a sense just to find the people that would investigate, investigators and all these people. I just didn't have it. It wasn't going to happen, especially after all these years. So I file a motion. Actually, I pray that I don't know how to do it, so I pray that God will show me how to do it. And I have all these other legal paperworks. But I don't have a DNA motion. It's called a 3.851. I don't have it. So what I do is, as I pray on it, I pray on it, and in doing so, 
I write up a motion that's I feel that's adequate enough to whatever the criteria is that I need to file this motion. And it takes me seven days. I mail it, I put it in the mail on June 6th, 2006. Then, a mini miracle occurs exactly four months later on October 6th, 2006. Brevard County Circuit Judge David Dugan orders the state to show cause why the DNA should not be tested. That means the judge was considering the motion seeking DNA testing and wanted to see what the state had to say about the request. One more month passes, and on November 6th, the state says Dylan's request is frivolous. So now the ball is back with Dylan, and he has 20 days to respond to that. He files a response, and something amazing happens. Dylan is ordered back to Brevard County for a court hearing on his motion. While he is at the county jail, a local television reporter interviews him about the DNA motion. I don't know if there really is any evidence. I'm just filing this motion hoping that there is. But after 25 years, you can probably imagine that if you know anything about the law, that stuff's disappeared before 10 years is up. It's gone and destroyed. I've never received a paper saying it was destroyed, so I imagine it was still there. So he puts me on the news that William Dillon is going in for DNA testing. Well, in doing so, and my family doesn't want me to talk to Dan Billows. They don't want me to talk to the news. They don't want me to talk to anybody. They want me to just be quiet and get my DNA testing, hopefully that it won't, you know, make anybody mad or anything like that there. So I do it anyway. I just go against them, and they're talking about, well, we're not going to, you know, we're just going to leave you alone because you won't listen to us in the census. But after they see the interview, they all like it. Well, that interview that I did went on the Internet to the Innocent Product in Tallahassee because it had DNA involvement in it. They looked at it, sent me a piece of paper asking if they could look into my transcripts to read the case. So I agreed to them. They do it. They look into it. And they say, we'd like to represent you. That's when he met attorney Melissa Montel of the Innocence Project of Florida, who told me that she believed him right away. The same exact impression Dylan left on assistant public defender Mike Parolo. Actually, the way I got involved was no phone calls, nothing. I uh, had a, uh, his, his file popped on my desk that there was a hearing coming up. Um, show up to court and you know, met Mr. Dillon for the first time. Um, in a holding cell at the courthouse, actually. Um, he had written a, a letter and had filed a, a pro se motion for DNA testing. Uh, the case was before Judge Dugan. Um, Judge Dugan had suggested that he probably should consider an attorney, either hire one or get a uh, court-appointed attorney. So that's kind of how I came in. I spoke to Mr. Dillon for a few minutes in the holding cell. We came out and Judge Dugan gave us the option or gave me the option of either uh, adopting Bill's motion or getting some time to amend it and, and you know, do some further research. That's kind of how I first heard about Mr. Dillon, saw Mr. Dillon. It was more of you know, Judge Dugan saying, hey, you know, we think this is one of those cases that he, he shouldn't do it on his own and have some assistance, and here you go. <laughs> the state fought the motion to test DNA. Remember, they fought it in the Wilton Dedge case. And if you remember season one of Murder on the Space Coast, 
they fought against it in the Gary Bennett case, too. What is truly amazing is that when attorneys went down to the evidence area of the courthouse, they initially were unable to find the crucial yellow surfeit T-shirt that the killer left behind in John Parker's pickup truck the night of the murder. But, just as hope was fading, a clerk remembered another evidence bag, and there it was, a bag with a bloody yellow shirt. But here is where things could get tricky. Everyone knew that the blood on the T-shirt belonged to the victim. But would there be anything else on there that might somehow prove that William Dillon was not the killer? Again, here's attorney Melissa Montel of the Innocence Project of Florida talking about the importance of that yellow shirt. It was often brought up at trial. The state relied on it a lot. Um, Mr. Dillon's family has actually told us that they, they were there for the whole trial and they remember the, the prosecutors actually waving it around in front of the jury. Um, it was the only piece of physical evidence that they had allegedly linking Bill Dillon to the crime. So it was of utmost importance and um, there, there was no way that they could back away from that, you know, now. The t-shirt itself seemed to be in, in pretty good shape. Um, you know, the blood stains were apparent on it. What we didn't know is whether we would be able to get any biological evidence from the really important parts of the t-shirt, which were the armpits and the collar, um, which is where the um, perpetrator would have sweat while murdering Mr. Dvorak. Uh, we were able to do that. So the results come back, and Bill's DNA is nowhere on that shirt. What's more important is that the sweat stains in the armpit area and the neck area belonged to another man. So if the killer was indeed wearing that shirt and then killed someone, well, the DNA should be his, right? Not so fast. According to the state, that really doesn't change a thing. Prosecutor Wayne Holmes said, and I quote, What does this mean? I do not believe it demonstrates innocence. End quote. So the state was digging in, and prepared to fight any sort of retrial or release. Bill's attorney, Mike Parolo, and the folks at the Innocence Project were licking their chops at the prospect of a hearing to decide whether the evidence meant Bill should get a new trial. Why? Well, here's Mike Parolo. We, I was ready just to present the truth of what was going on back in that time period, you know, the early 80s, uh, talking about 1980, 81, probably up until you know, 83 or 84. Um, so a good chunk of the early 80s, good first four years or so that at least I could find. Um, it was just to prove what was going on within that office to show that um, in a way Mr. Preston was a hired gun. Um, Mr. Preston was going to give a, a result that he knew he had to give. Um, he knew that this person X was a suspect and we're going to link person X to this shirt or, or pair of shorts or, or whatever the item of evidence may be. And unfortunately in this particular case, um, Mr. Dillon was uh, the guy and Preston was brought in to say, well, let's stick something to Bill. And hey, there's this t-shirt and, and let, let's stick it to him. Um, you know, always looking back on it is very, we had so many things, so, you know, so many witnesses to, uh, to present and so much testimony to present. Um, but, but at the end, as much as it was to put, again, the pressure on them, 
on the state attorney's office, but it was never any um, you know, threats or in, in a way of saying, oh, well, we're going to put this up. We were ready to go forward with um, factual, you know, competent evidence um, by more than one individual. Um, and, and the ultimate evidence was to, to put up the, the DNA evidence to say that you now this is the same shirt um, that was linked to the homicide and there's no dispute about it. This is the shirt that the killer wore and uh, but there's one thing that's you know wrong with the uh, the first theory and that's uh, that the man who was wearing it is not you know the killer who was wearing it is not Mr. Dillon. We wound up getting about two or three days full days set aside for the hearing. Um, we were going to have again former prosecutors uh, testify, um, former uh, retired homicide detectives, um, dog experts like actual real dog experts with you know FBI training or former FBI agents uh, to talk about how um, incorrect Mr. Preston's theories were, um, not only in this case, but in countless other cases he worked on. And Bill, well, he was looking forward to watching his lawyers lay out a case for prosecutorial misconduct, sort of like we've been laying out here. It was all going to come to the, everything was going to come to the, the light of, of what, what we say on our side that they've really happened. And they're going to come back and say, well, no, this didn't really happen, and no, that didn't really happen. So it was just going to be another battle in a sense, but it was going to be out in the open. The fraudulent stuff was going to be out in the open. The, the feeling of malicious prosecution was going to really be in the air. And once they start putting all these things in close context, people were going to see the fact of how was he really convicted of this crime. They were really going to look at that and say, that's impossible. How can you actually say he committed this crime? When you see all this evidence that they were going to present for forward Tuesday, when all the fraudulent stuff that's on the state side and say, how was he actually committed of this crime, or convicted of this crime? You know, it's great when you got it all spread out and it's said at different intervals, but when you put it all in one lump and then just say it and put all these people on the stand and get them to talk and say this and say that and say what really happened, then you come to figure out that I never should have been in prison from the giddy-up. And that's the bottom line of it was, is they really didn't want it to come out. They really didn't want to have to say, we made a mistake. They don't want to have to say that. That's, that's, what it's all, that's what all this is about. It's not saying in the sense that we really want to retry him. That's not what it was, because in the same sense as they didn't have evidence to say, true evidence to say that I committed any crime at all. What they have was that fabricated trial that they did and what they, what they got manipulated people into saying. There was no true evidence I committed any crime because I didn't. So how can there possibly be any truth to any evidence that says I committed a crime? There can't be. So anything that they have comes out of somebody's mouth that they manipulated into saying something. Or professionals that were unprofessional. John Preston. John Preston. So the state blinked. On Friday, November 14th, 2008, the state agreed to grant William Dillon a new trial. He was released on bond and was able to eat a home-cooked meal with his family for the first time in almost 28 years. At a press conference the following day, attorneys including David Menchel, Seth Miller, and J.R. Russo 
called upon then-Florida Governor Charlie Crist to look into how something like this could have happened several times in the same county. Here is Seth Miller from that press conference. I've spoken to the governor's office this morning and we'll be making a formal request next week um, for not only the appointment of a special prosecutor um, to look into these cases, um, but to uh, do an investigation, to have subpoena power, um, to get at this information and root out the corruption, root out the bad actors, um, because people have to pay for uh, when they take away 27 years of Bill's life or 22 years of Wilton Dedge's life or years of Juan Ramos' life, and someone has to pay. And here is J.R. Russo. For all the happiness and celebration known yesterday by those previously mentioned, it was not and should not have been a day of pride, happiness, or celebration for the criminal justice system. Yesterday was an acknowledgement, 27 years after the fact, of a gross failure of our criminal justice system. As has been demonstrated many times recently, there are many people in our prisons today serving time for crimes they did not commit. This has not happened by accident. Our newspaper, Florida Today, also called on the state to investigate. But those pleas fell on silent ears. And then, a few weeks after the state agreed to this new trial for Dylan, the journalism gods smiled down upon me. I happened to be at Bill's house interviewing him and his family for a Christmas article, when at the very same time his attorney, Mike Parolo, was receiving a fax from the state attorney's office saying they would not be trying Dylan again. Yep, a fax. No one bothered to call Parolo, and at first he actually thought it was a joke. Um, I was actually approached with by a, several people in the office that got wind of it before I did and were coming up to me and saying, did you, uh, did you get uh, Dylan's note process? And I was like, oh, get out of here, you know, stop messing with me. And he said, here you go. And I was like, I had to call the state attorney's office to verify that. <laughs> I don't know if it was some cruel joke, but uh, it it was true, and obviously the first call I made after verifying it was to Bill, and um, kind of, you know, didn't know how to tell him in a way, you know, uh, I'd called him, I said, hey, Bill, uh, it's Mike, how you doing? Um, You know, I got some good news, I got some bad news for you, and he's like, "Uh uh-oh, he's like, well, let me hear what bad news you got. I'm like, well, we're not going to have a trial in March. And he said, well, you know, that's, that, that's okay. You know, I, I want you to do what you need to do to be ready for trial. He thought that maybe I was going to tell him we're going to have a continuance. And I said, well, I got some good news for you as well. You know, they, uh, they uh, entered a null process in your case. They're, they're dropping all charges. And it was about silence for a couple of seconds and then could actually hear the man crying. So it was one of those feelings that, you know, I can, one of those things I will always remember um, just hearing. You know, another, grown man's voice on the other end of the phone just completely pause and hear the tears and and then obviously he was very happy <laughs> at the same time he just said Mike I, I gotta call you right back <laughs> I was like do what you gotta do <laughs> like I said I was there when Bill received that call here he is calling a friend to share the good news maybe they just called me Mike Perillo just called me a non-pressing charges girl you don't have to worry <laughs> you know sit, are you sitting down they just, they just called me a non-process of charges. Nobody I'm not kidding, you know, Mr. Parker, non-process of charges this morning. I'm going to the monitor place to get this off my leg right now. <laughs> I can go anywhere now. I'm a free man now. No charges, no felonies, no, no crimes. That's awesome. 
There you go. Look at that. Yes, sir. Boy, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> he would still face some tough times. Bill's adjustment back into the world was tenuous at first. Nearly 28 years in prison for a crime he did not commit can do that. In a sense, he still felt like the young man who went to prison all those years ago. I still have the 22-year-old in there, in that sense. The 22-year-old is still there, but I have a stronger mind in the sense to say that, you know, we don't do things that the 22-year-old does, but the 22-year-old is still there. He is still fresh in that, in that face and sense is that way he's seeing things. And I would have to say that basically he's, that's basically what's seeing things in such a changed way and, and not really taking things and being so perplexed. Because me maturely and looking at things, it doesn't really matter. I can learn anything at any given time. But I am taken back a lot of times by the change in so much stuff. And the fact that I don't seem to be as into the world as everybody is. I just don't seem to be as into the world as everybody really is. I'm here, but I'm not really wanting to be. I mean, I know I'm blessed to be sitting here talking to you, and I'm blessed to be out in the society doing things, but it's almost like that the world is moving so fast, so much movement that I just can't catch up. And I realize in my own head that I'm not going to be able to catch up. You got to realize that in my head, I've figured out numbers that I really only have maybe 20 good years of life left. You know, I get up into my 70s and life's a little bit harder, you know, you know, deal with it. In that sense, so physically able-wise, as far as functioning in a sense of any little bit of youth left, which is limited, would be five years, maybe ten. Then I'm going to get into the older years. So basically, in my mindset that I miss that and that there's no need for me to try to even catch it. So there's a big gap in my life in this free world that I can't catch and when I'm dealing with people, it's very evident a lot of times. And when I get into crowded places, I can't stand it. When I get into like places to eat dinner that are real crowded, I just can't stand it. It's like my senses all go crazy and just fire up on me. I have to go, I can't be around it. It doesn't make me angry or anything, it just makes me nervous, it makes me uptight. I feel free in the senses that I'm out here, but I don't feel a sense of freedom inside of me. I don't feel that freedom inside of me. And I don't know if it's because of ingrained uh, institutionalizing or if it's just the fact that I feel so perplexed in the senses of the world that surround me that I can't loosen up in that senses to say I am. I'm only just now starting to learn that I am actually free in a sense of movement. <clears throat> I really have been, without people's knowledge, you know, I make decisions based on the fact of confinement rather than freedom. A short while after the state decided not to try its hand with a second trial, the Brevard County Sheriff's Office announced it was going to reopen the James Dvorak murder investigation. 
I admit I was pretty skeptical, but wound up being pleasantly surprised when in June 2011, they announced they had named four suspects in the murder. And remember when I told you about a tip that was in the case file? Yep, that tip was right and identified two of the murderers. Here is then-Sheriff Jack Parker talking about the investigation. We reopened the case because we wanted to determine all the facts surrounding the homicide. We wanted to know what led investigators in 1981 to determine that Mr. Dillon committed the murder. More importantly, we wanted to know if Mr. Dillon was not responsible for the murder, who was. During the course of the investigation, based on witness testimony, DNA results, and a suspect statement, four subjects, Philip Huff, James Johnstone, Daryl Novak, and Eric Novak, have been identified as the suspects who are alleged to be directly responsible for the aggravated battery which most likely led to the death of James Dvorak. Based on the totality of the DNA evidence and witness and suspect interviews, the findings indicate that William Michael Dillon was not involved in the aggravated battery that most likely led to the death of James Dvorak. How were they found? Well, the DNA on the armpits and the neck collar of that yellow shirt were a match for Johnstone. And one of the four men, Phil Huff, told police what happened that night in 1981. He said the four had been smoking weed with Dvorak. When Johnstone and Dvorak left the group, Huff, Eric Novak, and his brother J.D. Novak went looking for them and found the two men in a compromising position. Johnstone jumped up and began to beat Dvorak. And the thing is, Huff knew exactly what the murder weapon was. Remember a few episodes ago when I mentioned that police had kept that a secret? Well, it was a tree branch, and that is something only the killers and the police would have known. The case was then turned over to a prosecutor from outside Brevard County to determine whether the men could be brought to court. He said they could not. He explained they couldn't prove murder, and the statute of limitations on aggravated battery had long run out, and the killers remain free to this day. Well, that, according to former prosecutor Sam Bardwell, is poppycock. Now, let me also tell you another problem with the intellectual honesty of prosecutors. William Dillon, not only was he innocent, they found the true killers. The true killers confessed. They had DNA evidence. There was a confession by one of them yep. to a bartender who said, I did something bad in Canova Beach today. And you know, they had a case that I'd prosecute. I said, I'll prosecute it. But what did they do? What, what, is, what does the prosecutor do? Why, they get somebody to review the case and say, it's not prosecutable. That's a lie. That's not, it's not just merely an opinion. It's a bald-faced lie. A confession in DNA, a confession in DNA, interlocking confessions by multiple people, that's as potent a case as you can possibly get, and the passage of time doesn't change that. Why do they allow murderers to go free and fight so hard to keep innocent people in jail? Like we heard from Wilton Dedge earlier and Gary Bennett last season on Murder on the Space Coast, 
Bill never imagined something like this could happen to an innocent person. I believed in the system, I believed in the law, never experienced it, so I didn't know. At the same census, it was like, how can it possibly be proven a murder or even involved if I know I'm not involved in any way? It, to me, it was almost, I was a young kid. It was fun. It was laughing. I mean, I was, I was intimidated and scared at the time it was happening. But when it first started, it was like an adventure. But then once it started getting all serious, it was a little too late in the game to program. I mean, I didn't do anything to try to make them think I was involved in any way. But it didn't bother me because I believed in a system that says facts are facts, you know. The facts are facts. But when junk science and full testimony is presented as factual, then we have a problem and justice gets lost. Speaking of justice getting lost, the snitch in this case, Roger Dale Chapman, issued a tearful apology to Dylan and even appeared before state lawmakers in Tallahassee as they debated putting together a compensation package for Bill, who wound up receiving $1.35 million from the state. He moved out of Brevard County, I can't blame him for that, and is working on his music career. Next time on Murder on the Space Coast. We saw the use of John Preston, um, the dog handler, who was brought in in these cases, um, paid in cash by the day, had access to law enforcement files, so he knew the facts of cases and could really lead his dog to answers rather than his dog leading him to answers, mm -hmm. um, and really just manufacturing evidence. And we saw that in Gary Bennett's case as well as um, Dylan and Dej and Juan Ramos. But what else we saw was that that wasn't enough in many cases. We didn't have DNA in those days. And I don't think they did HLA analysis and some of the more rudimentary analysis that could exclude people but not include. So, you know, so the case was really weak. And I'm sitting there, you know, I'm the prosecutor, I'm a prosecutor, I'm saying this is a really sorry ass case. But I'm looking at it and the man, uh, Preston, was so bold in his assertions, his lie was so powerful, so enormous, that you thought, he can't be lying because it's too big of a lie. And then I thought, where has this guy been all my prosecuting life? Because all you had to do is take, get a scent sample, give it to the dog. And he had a history of going all over the country. For now, I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And for more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to floridaday.com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, Brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network. Mm -hmm.